Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's pray. Lord, who am I to proclaim the glory of the resurrection? The good news that Christ is alive. The news that brings dead men alive and gives them the hope of eternal life. Who are we even to be granted such good news? Pray today as we consider the resurrection that we would come to it afresh. Recognizing that we deserve nothing but your just judgment. And yet through your grace you reach down into time. To die for our sins. And to raise us from the dead. May we dwell richly on this glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Frank Morrison was an English freelance writer who lived from 1881 to 1950. He set out to write a paper entitled, Jesus, the Last Phase. The purpose of the paper was to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Frank was convinced that if he could disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he would disprove Christianity. Frank believed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the linchpin to our faith. And if he could disprove that linchpin, everything would fall apart. And the question is, is that true. Was Frank right? If Frank could disprove the physical, historical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, does Christianity fall apart? The Apostle Paul answers us this question in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Frank Morrison was correct on this one item that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is indeed the linchpin of Christianity. And if he can disprove the resurrection, not only is Jesus still dead, but so is our hope and our salvation and our future and our faith. If you would please open up to John chapter 20. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, you will definitely need a Bible. There should be one in the seat in front of you. 
We will be looking at John chapter 20, verses 1 through 23 today. It's page 906 in that red Bible in the seat in front of you. If you do not own a Bible, that Bible is for you to keep as a gift from Jacob's well. A lot happened on that Good Friday. Uh, Jesus was betrayed by Judas around midnight. He was taken before Jewish leaders who sent him on to Pilate, the Roman governor, so that he could put him to death. The Roman governor saw and declared Jesus as innocent, and yet pressured by the Jewish people, Pilate demanded that Christ be beaten and then crucified. Jesus on the cross was mocked and jeered and tortured and yet proclaims, Tetelestai, it is finished. The payment for sin has been paid in full. The wrath of God, the justice of God has been satisfied. After his death, to make sure Jesus was dead, dead, a Roman soldier took a spear, struck it up through his abdomen, underneath his ribs, into his heart where outflowed blood and water. Then Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus courageously came to Pilate and claimed Christ so that they could take him and give him a proper burial. And then there was the silent Saturday, the high day, the Sabbath of the Jews as the people rested according to the Lord's commands. But now it is Sunday, Holy Sunday, Victorious Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And Mary Magdalene, along with other women, come to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. And that's where we pick up today's passage. John chapter 20, we'll be reading from verse 1 through 23. John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple And they went going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray again. Lord, pray that your Holy Spirit would attend the preaching of your word to transform the hearts of men and women and children. We need your help so desperately. We're so prone to wander, so prone to disbelief. Fill us, embolden us, revive us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I think to one degree or another, all of us deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is an intellectual denial such as Frank Morrison who just outright denied the fact that Jesus raised from the dead. He believed it was a myth that was made up and circulated among people. Maybe that's you here today. You intellectually deny that Jesus rose from the dead. There's another denial. I'll call it a lifestyle denial. Maybe you're here and intellectually and in your heart you believe Jesus rose from the dead. But your, your, your life is not always consistent with the reality of the resurrection. There are times that you're come, overcome with anxiety, not realizing that Jesus is alive. There are times that you fear death, not knowing that Jesus will raise you from the dead. There are times where you, where you live as if you're not a Christian. You sin against God because you forget that Jesus, the risen Lord, is with you and over you at every moment of the day. And so there is an intellectual denial. There is a lifestyle denial. In whichever way you come to church today, today and next Sunday, I want to encourage you to doubt your doubts about the resurrection. To consider the evidence in Scripture and outside of Scripture and draw a rational conclusion and live accordingly. In today's passage, we are going to look at three evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To see that Jesus was, in fact, historically, bodily raised from the dead. 
the first evidence for Jesus' historical, physical resurrection from the dead is the unexpected surprise of the resurrected Jesus. Look at verse 1 with me. Keep your Bibles open. If you're new here, we keep going through the Bible the whole sermon. So keep your Bibles open. Verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now Mary Magdalene is the woman mentioned here because much of the focus of John's gospel in the next few verses is going to be the story of Mary and her encounter with the resurrected Lord. But we know from the other Gospels that Mary was not alone, that she was with at least three or four or five or maybe more other women. And these women were the same women that saw Joseph of Arimathea put the body of Jesus in the tomb. And the reason why it's so important that it was the same women is so that we know that when they went back to anoint the body of Jesus, they didn't get the wrong address, right? The tomb wasn't empty because they showed up at the wrong place. They saw where Jesus was laid. They actually saw how he was laid in the tomb, the Gospels tell us. And so they come back to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. Now, it may be obvious, but I think we have to say the obvious. The reason why these women came bringing spices to anoint Jesus is because their assumption was that he was still dead. So Mary gets there and the stone is rolled away from the tomb. Verse 2, we continue. It says, so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple talking about John, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away, excuse me, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Throughout Jesus' ministry on several occasions, he had alluded to the fact that he would rise on the three day, third day. Matthew 12, we read for Jesus says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. He was speaking about his body. And then in Luke chapter 9, crystal clear language. Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so Jesus, throughout multiple teachings, made it clear that he will die, but three days later will rise from the dead. And yet here, when Mary discovers the empty, conclusion, the, the empty grave, what is her conclusion? The body was stolen. Grave robbers took it. And we don't know where they put his body. This was not an uncommon occurrence of the time, especially among the, the, the tombs of the richer people, that they would go in and they would steal maybe the, the swag that was buried in the tomb with them. See, the resurrection was not something Mary or the other women expected. They had no suspicion that Jesus would have raised from the dead. This is further confirmed down in verse 11 through 15. Look there with me. After Mary returns to the tomb, it says, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus but she did not know that it was Jesus. Maybe because she was crying. Maybe because her head was hung down in grief. We don't know the reason. 
But nonetheless, what we do know is that she was not looking for a living Jesus, right? Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. I love Mary. Mary loves Jesus so much that even as the other disciples go back to hide in a locked room, Mary is there calling out the gardener, right? Did you steal his body? Where'd you put the body? Tell me. I'm not afraid. Come on. You can keep the stuff. I just want the body. And so here you have Mary at the empty grave, and what we see is that the promises of the Old Testament were not enough to convince Mary that Jesus raised from the dead. The promises of Jesus were not enough to convince Mary that Jesus had raised from the dead. The appearance of angels was not enough to convince Mary that Jesus raised from the dead. And even Jesus himself was not enough to convince Mary that Jesus rose from the dead. And she was not alone. None of the other women said, hey, Mary, do you remember? Jesus said he would rise from the dead. None of these women were expecting the resurrection. But then again, neither were the men. Tim Keller points this out, and I think it's so, so obviously true. Why is it that none of the men were at the grave that Sunday morning? If they believed that the resurrection was going to happen, even if they just believed 1% in their heart and in their mind, just 1%, just itsy tiny little bit, if they believed just a little bit that Jesus was going to raise from the dead, would they not have at least showed up out of curiosity? Wouldn't they have at least gone to see, okay, is this 1% true? No one, none of the disciples, none of the apostles, none of the women were expecting Jesus to raise from the dead. It wasn't even on their radar. This past week, I got a phone call from my mom, and she said, did you hear the news? And I said, no. She said, did, did, you, did you hear about what's going on in Paris? I said, no. She said, Notre Dame Cathedral is burning. She mentioned it because when I was younger, we visited it together as a child. But the reason why I didn't guess it is because something like this was not even on my radar. It wasn't something that I would guess would happen. You know, although the resurrection had been foretold many times, to Jesus' closest disciples, female and male, the resurrection was completely an unexpected surprise. They did not believe Jesus would rise from the dead, which tells us that the resurrection of Jesus was not a hallucination imagined by wishful people. It was not a myth created by his followers to promote a fairy tale. You see, every generation has a generational arrogance. We always think we're smarter than the generation before us. And we look back at the people of the Bible and we think, oh, these are just naive people. They're gullible people. They believe in fairy tales. But in fact, what we see in this passage is the exact opposite. Not only Mary Magdalene, but none of the women and none of the apostles considered that Jesus was going to raise from the dead. It was completely an unexpected Surprise. Now that is enough proof that Jesus has raised from the dead, but there is more proof. Not only was the resurrected Jesus an unexpected surprise, but it was also undeniably verified. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, so Peter went out with the other disciple, 
And they were going toward the tomb. That is after Mary Magdalene told them that someone stole Jesus' body. Verse 4, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love how John just kind of slides that in there. I'm faster than Peter. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. He saw it. This, this term for, for saw in the Greek is not the term that maybe we would expect. Blepo is a, the normal Greek word to see something, but this is not that word. This is the word theoreo which means to view attentively, to investigate, to ponder, to try to ascertain information. He's investigating the crime scene. Verse 7, And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. It may not appear this way to us at a surface level reading, but these are important details of the empty tomb of Jesus. You see, if grave robbers came in and stole the body of Jesus, they would not have taken time to unwrap the body. I, even more than that, they would probably want those cloths. Do you remember just on Good Friday, the, 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 the Roman soldiers casting lot for Jesus' tunic and clothes? They divided up amongst them. They wanted this. This was precious material. But even more than that, if for some reason, if for some reason grave robbers came in and they, they, they took the burial clothes off, they unwrapped the cloth, why would they fold up the face cloth? Why would they put it neatly somewhere for people to see? I mean, this would be like a robber coming into your house, trashing it, trying to find something, and then before he leaves, nicely making all of your beds. It makes no sense. Verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, talking about John, and he saw and believed. This verse is talking again about the apostle John, given the empty tomb, given the folded grave clothes and how they were laying. John started to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Verse 9, for as yet, that is up to this point, they did not understand the scripture that he, Jesus, must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. You know, Katie pointed this out earlier, but the reason why the stone was rolled away from the tomb was not so that Jesus could get out. You know, Jesus passed through walls later in this passage. We'll see that Jesus kind of disappears from, from some disciples on the road to Emmaus. He seems to be able to transport, although he's physically resurrected. And so the, tomb, the, 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 the stone was not rolled away so Jesus could get out, but so that all the skeptics could get in. Jesus continues to undeniably verify his resurrection to the apostles and others in a later passage. But before that, we want to look at his undeniable verification to Mary. Verse 13. They, the angels, said to her, Mary Magdalene, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Again, she's not looking for a living Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
Jesus knows why she is weeping. He's Jesus. <laughs> you don't even have to be Jesus to know why she's weeping. And yet he asks, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? He knows who she is seeking. But the point that Jesus is trying to make is the one that she is looking for. It's the one she is looking at. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Finally, enough is enough. Jesus is going to reveal the resurrection to Mary in one of the most tender, beautiful, and compassionate ways. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. No one said her name the way Jesus said her name. Back in John chapter 10, way before the cross, Jesus is teaching about how he is the true shepherd, the good shepherd. And what he says is he says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. He calls them by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Mary was not convinced of the resurrection despite the scriptures, despite the empty grave, despite the full of clothes, despite the angels, despite even seeing Jesus. Mary was convinced of the resurrection when Jesus calls out her name. And Mary runs to him and she embraces him. I'm guessing this is how many of us would respond if, if, if a loved one that had passed showed up. We would hug them. And Jesus says to her, hey, let, let go. <laughs> we got stuff to do. And we'll come back to that later. But Mary then goes and tells the apostles that Jesus has raised from the dead. And the reason why she's so convinced that Jesus had raised from the dead is because she had heard the resurrected Jesus. She had seen the resurrection Jesus. And she had touched the resurrected Jesus. The verification of the resurrection of Jesus continues. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, why did Jesus come and say, peace be with you? Well, there's many reasons. One reason is because it was a common greeting. But I think maybe the most important for reason for us to understand is to consider their last experience with Jesus. Do you remember what they did with Jesus the last time they saw him? They betrayed him. They abandoned him. They did not stand up for him. And none of them came to claim the body of Jesus and give him a proper burial. And so maybe Jesus is coming to rebuke them. Maybe he's coming to crack some skulls. Maybe he's coming to say, listen, you good for nothing apostles. I invested three years of my life into you. And what happens when I need you the most? You run away. Jesus could have said that. It would have been justified. But that's not why he was raised from the dead. Jesus comes and with mercy and grace says, peace be with you. Even in verse 17, he says to Mary, he calls them his brothers. Jesus comes to his own and says, peace be with you on two occasions. And then verse 20 says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad, literally rejoicing exceedingly when they saw the Lord. We read an account of this in Luke's gospel. You'll see it on the screen. 
behind me in Luke chapter 24, talking about this same situation where Jesus appears to the apostles. It says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why doubt, why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet. That is, that is, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, I love that term, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of fish, a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Could you imagine what that atmosphere would be like just with jaws open? He's eating a fish. Why is it that Jesus not only says, see my scars, but touch my scars? Why is it that Jesus eats a fish so that he can prove to them that he's not a spirit? He's not a ghost. He is physically raised from the dead. No longer had the apostles simply seen and heard about the empty grave. But now they had undeniable verification of the resurrection of Jesus. Like Mary, they saw the resurrected Jesus. They heard the resurrected Jesus. And they touched the wounds of the resurrected Jesus. Proving that he was the one and only Jesus Christ. Not a, not a ghost, not a lookalike brother. But the actual Jesus of Nazareth. I've shared this story before. I can't remember how long ago, so I'll share it again. But when I was a kid, me and my friend Brent Walter Coleman was his name. We rode our bikes up to the local elementary school just to play on the playground or something. And we were riding home because he had to get back for dinner. And as we were riding back to the house, it was probably two miles away, there was a hot air balloon that passed right over our head, probably from here to the ceiling. It was close. And, and so we followed the hot air balloon, and it landed in a field in the middle of this neighborhood. And so we, we biked around to go and to kind of witness it, because we've never seen a hot air balloon up close. And, one, and an amazing thing happened. They started giving rides to kids that had assembled there. And so there would be four people on the ground holding ropes, and then kids would take turns getting in that basket. And I remember getting in that wicker basket that had been worn over by people getting in and out of it. And, and you know, them pulling on the chain and the, the flame, whoo, hearing the sound of it and feeling the heat of it and seeing the, the beauty of the inside of balloon. And we would go up, I don't know, maybe 100 feet, and then they'd pull us back down. Well, as you can imagine, we were so excited by this. And so Brent and I jumped back on our bikes and we started to ride home. And as we're riding home, his dad came and cut us off at a street. And he said, Walter Coleman, you were supposed to be home half an hour for dinner. And he said, but dad, but dad, we got to ride in a high air balloon. And his dad's response was, Walter Coleman, don't you lie to me. And he put his window up and drove home. Why was he so skeptical that we had this experience because they didn't, he did not see the hot air balloon. Because he did not touch the hot air balloon. Because he did not hear the hot air balloon. But we did. Maybe you're here today as a skeptic of the resurrection. And while you cannot audibly hear Jesus today, visibly see Jesus today, or tangibly touch Jesus today, we have skeptics that went in our place who did. In fact, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that the resurrected Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And then it says, most of whom are still alive. And so go check with them, Paul says. You don't believe me? Go ask the people that he appeared to. 
Why can we believe that Jesus was historically bodily raised from the dead? Because it was an unexpected surprise that they did not make up. Because there was undeniable verification to skeptics who saw and heard and touched the resurrected Lord. But I think the strongest evidence of the three might be the fact of the unceasing mission of the resurrected Jesus. I'll try to go quickly. So so let's first look at, at Mary and then the disciples. Verse 17 says, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Again, you can imagine if if a loved one passed away, especially in the prime of their life and they showed up, you'd probably hold on for dear life and never want to let go. This is where Mary was. And Jesus says, hey, let go. We got work to do. I'm headed to the Father, but I'm here now. We need to go and tell others that I'm alive. Verse 18, Mary gets to be the first proclaimer of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a great privilege. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. You know what's so interesting is is later that night, Jesus would appear to the apostles visibly, physically, audibly, like he would appear to them. And so why is it that Jesus sends Mary to go tell them that he's raised from the dead? In some ways, it wasn't really all that necessary. They could have waited a few hours. I think the reason why Jesus sent Mary to go proclaim the good news that Jesus is alive is because Jesus is setting a pattern for all of his disciples, for all who know that he is alive, to go and proclaim Christ is risen from the dead. We see Jesus repeat this missional command to his apostles. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You know, Jesus did not just talk to us from heaven, but God the Father sent him into our world to not only proclaim, but to accomplish the good news of our salvation. Now Jesus is saying, I'm calling you, I'm sending you into the world, into your families, into your synagogues, into your workplaces, into the whole world to proclaim the good news of my resurrection. Verse 22, he says, and when he had said these, this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is a foretaste or an appetizer of a Pentecost, which is to come where the Holy Spirit comes in power fully. And then verse 23, a verse that is confusing and we don't have time to dive deep into, but says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What we see from this verse, at the very least, is that Jesus is about the forgiveness of sins. Like I said, we don't have time to go deep into it. We can talk later if you want about it. But I think what Jesus is telling us here is that he is now giving authority to the leaders of his church to confirm when people have accepted the resurrected Christ and therefore the forgiveness of sins. We know that only God can forgive sins. We're told that in the scriptures. And in the, in the book of Acts, when, when the church is breaking out, we don't see the apostles setting up confessional booths to forgive some sins and not others. Only God can forgive sins, but the apostles and the leaders of the church are given this authority to confirm people's true faith in Christ and admit them into the church through the sacrament of baptism. Nonetheless, the pattern you see in this passage and throughout the rest of the Bible is that people experience the resurrection and they are sent out to go proclaim the resurrection. Now here's the interesting thing. This is why it evidences Christ's resurrection. 
If you remember, these disciples, these apostles were a bit cowardly people. Uh, We would probably be the same, but remember they all scattered away from Jesus. Peter denied Jesus because of, you know, a wee little girl that he was afraid of. They didn't stand up for him when the crowd was crying out, crucify him. Only John was at, was at the cross, and, and of course, none of them claimed the body of Jesus. And so these were cowardly people. They were now hiding out in a locked room out of fear of the Jews. I mean, they were afraid. If you were going to start a revolution, these are not the people you would pick. And yet, as we read through the book of Acts, as, as the gospel of Christ and the church expands... What we see is these apostles are so transformed by something that they boldly, and proclaim, they boldly go and proclaim the death and resurrection of Christ, no matter the persecution, even to the point of death. The question is why? Why did they become so bold virtually overnight? And the only logical answer to that is that the resurrection is true. A blog from Grace Church Denver puts it this way. It says, how do you explain, this is a bit long, but I think it's a helpful summary. It says, how do you explain the complete sudden transformation of all the disciples if Jesus didn't raise from the dead? How do you explain why seven weeks later they're boldly preaching the gospel of Jesus in Jerusalem to many of the same Jews who demanded his crucifixion in the first place? How do you explain why 3,000 Orthodox Jews turned to faith in Jesus in a single day in response to Peter claiming that they themselves had witnessed the death and resurrection of Christ? If the Jewish religious leaders or the Romans had stolen the body of Jesus, all they had to do in the end to end this Christianity thing, which they despised, was to produce his body and prove the disciples to be liars and frauds. If the disciples had gone SEAL Team 6, slipped past the Roman guards and stolen Jesus' body from the tomb, how did the lies of a dead Jesus inspire them to go and change the world? If Jesus himself was not raised, but was a dead body somewhere, why did they give their lives to be martyred for this demonstrably deceitful cause? And then they quote this Japanese novelist, Shisaku Endo, who says, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you will be forced to believe that something hit the disciples that was so every bit as amazing, maybe different, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. For if we try to explain the changed lives of the early Christians, you will find yourself making leaps of faith as great as if we had believed in the resurrection to start with. Let me end with this. You remember Frank Morrison, that freelance journalist who set out to disprove the resurrection, the linchpin of Christianity. Well, his short paper actually became a book. And it was entitled, Who Moved the Stone? It was first printed in 1944 and then reprinted in 1955, 58, 62, 77, 81, 87, 96, 2006. This book turned out to be much different than what he had planned. Frank set out to write a paper undermining the resurrection. But by the end, he wrote a book that defended the historicity of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Frank Morrison set out to disprove the resurrection. But as Frank studied 
the evidence. The resurrection disproved Frank. And Frank was drastically transformed by the resurrection. He believed and he hoped and he lived and he experienced the resurrection for himself. If you pick up one of these books today, Who Moved the Stone? There's going to be a Ford in it by a man named Lee Strobel, another man who was a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune who set out to disprove the scriptures. And as he went, set out to disprove the scriptures, he found out the scriptures disproved him. And he too became a Christian. There are many of men who set out to disprove the scriptures and the resurrection of Jesus Christ who were converted and experienced the resurrection for themselves. Maybe it's your turn. It would be an unexpected surprise, wouldn't it? The evidence is undeniably verified by skeptics throughout the ages. Maybe today you could be the next overjoyed victim of the unceasing mission of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That first Easter Sunday was the Sunday of Christ's resurrection. Maybe this Easter Sunday is the Sunday of your resurrection. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Church, for all of you who believe in the resurrection, respond, he is risen indeed. Christ has risen. He is risen indeed. Christ has risen. He is risen indeed. Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that... You have not only risen, but you are risen, that you are alive, that you're actively pursuing your people, caring for us, loving us, redeeming us, that you have saved us to yourself for all eternity. As we turn to the table, we're reminded of the cost of our salvation, that you died in our place for our sin. Help us to receive with faith knowing that you are no longer dead, that the grave is empty, and that you have risen from the dead, and you are ruling and reigning today on our behalf before a holy God so that we can enjoy the resurrection today, tomorrow, and in the life to come. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.